0: Lesson 4 The Voice of the Silence Part 2 of Light on the Path opens with the following statement, quote, Out of the silence that is peace, a resonant voice shall arise, and this voice will say, It is not well, thou hast reaped, now thou must sow, and, knowing this voice to be the silence itself, thou wilt obey, unquote. The resonant voice that proceeds from out of the silence that is peace is the voice of spirit forcing its way into the field of consciousness. The voice is not as plain as when heard at the moment of illumination, for the ear is filled with the vibrations of the lower planes and cannot sense so clearly the high vibrations proceeding from the upper regions of the mind. But the voice is insistent and if listened to will make itself heard. It will not be confused with the thought waves with which the ether is filled. For when one thinks of the spiritual plane, he is lifted upward mentally, and the lower vibrations cannot reach him so plainly. He soon learns to distinguish the clear, pure voice of spirit from the grosser thought waves that are beating upon him. The voice of spirit always has an upward tendency, and its influence is always toward higher things. And this voice will say, It is not well. Thou hast reaped, now thou must sow. This passage pictures the longing which possesses the true occultist, who has experienced the higher consciousness, and which impels him to carry out in actual life the truth which he has received to manifest in action and association with the world the thought which has come to him in the silence. The soul may wait in solitude until the truth comes to it, but the truth, when once received and given a lodgment in the heart, fills the soul with a divine unrest and causes it to go forth into the world and live the life of the Spirit among and with men instead of apart and away from them. The man to whom spiritual illumination has come, even in its lightest form, is a changed being. He radiates thought of a different character from that emanating from the minds of those around him. He has different ideals and consequently different thoughts, and his thought waves have an effect upon the great body of thought waves of the world. They leaven the mass. They are like the stream of pure water pouring into the muddy pond. His thoughts and presence are needed in the world's work, and so the spiritual mind sends him an impulse to go forth and live the life, to live it among men and women and not apart from them. It says to him, Thou hast reaped, now thou must sow. And knowing this voice to be the silence itself, he obeys. There are three great stages in the spiritual and mental life of the race. And as the babe before birth goes through all the physical changes, shapes, and forms that the race has passed through during long ages of evolution, so does the growing man go through the stages of the mental and spiritual evolution of the race. But the individual goes through only such changes as lead up to the stage of evolution he has reached at full maturity he may reach only stage one, if he is a stage one individual. If he is a stage two individual, he passes through stage one, and then on to stage two. If he is a stage three soul, he passes through stage one, and then stage two, as rapidly as may be, and then unfolds into the stage three consciousness. Let us consider these three stages. Stage one is that plane of life in which the instinctive mind is in control, the intellect not being sufficiently developed to assert itself fully, and the spiritual mind being scarcely recognized. In this stage live the primitive races and the young child. Those dwelling in it have but little concern for aught but that which pertains to the physical life. Their thoughts are mainly those relating to food, shelter, and the gratification of the physical senses. There exists among these people a certain freedom, democracy, and a lack of the I am holier than thou or better than thou feeling, which renders their life freer and easier and happier than that of those in the next highest stage. They know little or nothing about sin, and generally follow their desires without question. They have a sort of instinctive belief in a higher power, but do not trouble themselves much about it, nor do they imagine that certain ceremonies or observances are pleasing to Deity, and that failure to perform are apt to arouse his wrath. They do not worry much about their chances of salvation and are disposed instinctively to realize that the power that takes care of them here will take care of them there. Stage two commences when the intellect begins to assume control. Man then begins to awaken to a sense of good and evil. He recognizes a mysterious something coming from a still higher part of his mind, which makes him feel ashamed of doing certain selfish things, and which causes him to experience a feeling of peace and satisfaction when he has done certain, comparatively, unselfish things. But the intellect does not stop with this. It begins to invent good things and bad things. Priests and prophets arise who say that certain things, usually the giving of a part of one's goods to the temple, are good and pleasing to deity, and that certain other things, for instance, the refusal to attend the temple or to contribute to its support, are bad and certain to be punished by deity. These priests and prophets invent heavens suited to the desires of their followers and hells filled with the particular things that their people fear. Things are separated into good and bad, the bad list seeming to be the larger. Most of the pleasant things of life are placed in the bad list for no other reason than that they are pleasant. In the same way the good list includes the majority of unpleasant things, the prevailing idea being that deity delights in seeing his children doing things unpleasant to them and waxes wroth if they chance to indulge in a pleasant act. Creeds and sects are devised, and dire punishment is meted to those who do not accept the former and join the latter. The idea seems to be that those who do not agree with one's particular conception of deity are against God or God's enemies, and must and will be punished by him. People often prefer to relieve God of the task of punishing these unbelievers and proceed to do it themselves. People in this stage of spiritual development are usually quite strenuous. They declare certain days to be holy, as if all days were not so, and insist that certain places are holier than others. They claim that certain peoples and races are chosen and favored, and that the rest are hated by deity. They insist that only a handful of men are to be saved, and that the majority of God's children are destined to everlasting damnation and punishment. Hell is very hot when seen from the viewpoint of stage two. Hate, arising from the feeling of self-righteousness, is a marked characteristic of this stage. Sects are formed, and hate and jealousy are manifested between them. Fear reigns, and the divine love is almost lost sight of. The brotherhood of man is but a name in this stage. All the brotherly feeling that is to be seen is confined to the people belonging to some particular sect. The outsiders are not brothers, but heathen, pagans, unbelievers, dissenters, heretics, etc. The sense of the oneness of all, which is instinctively felt in stage 1, and both seen and felt in stage 3, is apparently neither seen nor felt in stage two. In this stage, separateness seems to be the keynote. As the race passes still further along in this stage and intellect further unfolds, the reasoning faculties cause it to discard many superstitions and foolish notions that had at one time seemed sacred and the truth itself. Sheath after sheath, is discarded as outworn and no longer necessary, and usually a period of disbelief and skepticism sets in. The old things have been thrown aside, but nothing seems to have come to take their place. But after this phase, the spiritual mind seems to concentrate its effort to force into the field of consciousness the internal evidence of the truth, of real religion, of the teachings of spirit. And man gradually passes into stage three. Stage three people see good in everyone, in all things, in every place. Some things are seen to be more highly developed than others, but all are seen to form a part of the great plan. The developed soul parts with certain things from lack of desire, casting them off as worn out tools or clothing. But it sees that to others these same things are the best they have, and are far better than some other things which these undeveloped people had parted company with still further back. It sees that all of life is on the path, some a little farther advanced than others, but all journeying in the same direction. It sees all learning their lessons and profiting by their mistakes. It sees manifestations of both good and bad, relative terms, in each man and woman, but prefers to look for the good in the sinner rather than for the bad in the saint. It sees in sin principally mistakes, misdirected energy, and undeveloped mind. The stage 3 soul sees good in all forms of religions so much so that it finds it hard to follow the narrow creeds of any particular one. It sees the absolute worshipped and recognized in all the concentrations of deity that have ever originated in the human mind, from the stone idol to the highest conception of deity known to any of the churches, the difference being solely in the spiritual growth of the different worshippers. As man grows, His conception of deity advances. A man's idea of God is merely himself magnified. The God of the advanced man does not appeal to the savage any more than does the God of the savage attract the advanced man. Each is doing the best he can and is setting up a conception corresponding to his particular stage of growth. A writer has aptly expressed this thought in these words, A man's God is himself at his best, and his devil is himself at his worst. But devils pass away from man as his conception of deity enlarges. But the great distinguishing thought of the sage, three man is his consciousness of the oneness of all. He sees and feels that all the world is alive and full of intelligence in varying degrees of manifestation. He feels himself a part of that great life. He feels his identity with all of life. He feels in touch with all of nature in all its forms. In all forms of life he sees something of himself and recognizes that each particular form of life has its correspondence in something within himself. This does not mean that he is bloodthirsty like the tiger, vain like the peacock, venomous like the serpent, but still he feels that all the attributes of these animals are within himself, mastered and governed by his higher self, but still there. And consequently, he can feel for these animals, or for those of his race in which the animal characteristics are still in evidence. He pities them, but does not hate his brother, however much that brother's traits May seem undesirable and hurtful to him. And he feels within himself all the attributes of the higher life as well as the lower, and he realizes that he is unfolding and growing into these higher forms, and that some day he will be like them. He feels the great throbbing life of which he is a part, and he feels it to be his life. The sense of separateness is slipping from him. He feels the security that comes from this consciousness of his identity with the all-life, and consequently he cannot fear. He faces today and tomorrow without fear and marches forward toward the divine adventure with joy in his heart. He feels at home, for is not the universe akin to him? Is he not among his own? Such a consciousness divests one of fear, and hate and condemnation it teaches one to be kind it makes one realize the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man it substitutes a knowing for a blind belief it makes man over and starts him on a new stage of his journey a changed being no wonder that one in this stage three is misunderstood by stage two people No wonder that they often consider him to be a stage one man because he fails to see evil in what seems so to them. No wonder that they marvel at his seeing good in things that do not appear so to them. He is like a stranger in a strange land and must not complain if he be misjudged and misunderstood. But there are more and more of these people every year. They are coming in great quantities And when they reach a sufficient number, this old earth will undergo a peaceful revolution. In that day, man no longer will be content to enjoy luxury while his brother starves. He will not be able to oppress and exploit his own kind. He will not be able to endure much that today is passed over without thought and feeling by the majority of people. And why will he not be able to do these things? may be asked by some, simply because the man who has experienced this new consciousness has broken down the old feeling of separateness, and his brother's pain is felt by him, his brother's joy is experienced by him, he is in touch with others. From whence comes this uneasiness that causes men to erect hospitals and other charitable institutions? From whence comes this feeling of discomfort at the sight of suffering? From the spiritual mind that is causing the feeling of nearness to all of life to awaken in the mind of man, and thus renders it more and more painful for them to see and be aware of the pain of others, because they begin to feel it, and it renders them uncomfortable, and they make at least some effort to relieve it. The world is growing kinder by reason of this dawning consciousness, although it is still in a barbarous state as compared to its future condition when stage three becomes more common. The race today confronts great changes. The thousand straws floating through the air show from which direction the wind is coming and whither it is blowing. The breeze is just beginning to be felt. Soon it will grow stronger and then the gale will come which will sweep before it much that man has thought to be built for ages. And after the storm, man will build better things, things that will endure. Have you not noticed the signs? Have you not felt the breeze? But, mark you this, the final change will not come from hate, revenge, or other unworthy motives. It will come as the result of a great and growing love, a feeling that will convince men that they are akin, that the hurt of one is the hurt of all, that the joy of one is the joy of all, that all are one. Thus will come the dawn of the golden age. We may have appeared to have wandered from our text, but what we have said has a direct bearing upon the question of sowing after the reaping of giving after the receiving, of working after the acquiring of new strength. The voice out of the silence will indeed say to all of us, Go forth and labor in my vineyard. Labor not by strenuous effort or by an attempt to force the growth of living things. Thy work is best done by living. You are needed as leaven to lighten the mass.